years ago, I was at the Shannonville Speedway, and I, w I was uh, participating in a race day, and I got in the car, and I was uh, in the pits, and all of us were there, and it's that moment where it's like, you know, gentlemen, start your engines, only it's not that majestic, but you always say that in your head as a novice race car driver. So you get in the car, gentlemen, start your engines. I start the engine, and there's this banner stretching all the way across the racetrack by, uh, I think it was Pirelli Tires, and it was this massive banner, and the banner read, power is nothing without control. And, you know, in the race world, how much horsepower you have and how powerful the engine is and how much torque you can send to the wheels and all these kinds of things aren't really that relevant if you can't control the power. And, you know, for a lot of my Christian life, that was my view of prayer. It was a consumer idea about prayer. My idea was, I've got God in my life because of Jesus. And so now there's all this power that's available to me. If I could just control it, oh, I know how to control it, through prayer. I mean, prayer is this tool by which my life is going through unfavorable circumstances and things, and the way that I control God is by praying. And I tell God what to do in Jesus' name, because after all, power is nothing without control. That was really very juvenile, but that was really, for a lot of years, the way that I saw prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, which we've been going through line by line, reveals that prayer is not primarily given to us to get things. Prayer is primarily given to us to get God. And he does invite us to ask him for things, of course, and we see that in the Lord's Prayer, but primarily it's that we need God because our old nature wants to be God, and our new nature finds its rest in God. And so we've been given prayer so that we can be re recalibrated out of our old nature and find a very restful place in our new nature of trusting God. So this morning we're going to look at the line in Lord's Prayer which reads, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We find that in Matthew 6. Now, what we're going to do again, as we've been doing each week, is we're going to allow the scripture to interpret the scripture. So I'm going to go to two passages that will expound on what does it mean that thy kingdom will come. That's what is God's kingdom. And then another passage that speaks about his will being done. So in a minute, I'm going to read Romans 11, 33 to 36, and then I'm going to read Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. One speaks about the greatness of God's kingdom, and one speaks about the greatness of his will. Now, we can have great confidence in prayer. Great confidence in prayer. Not because we can presume to know God's will, but because we know his will is perfect. And we can have great confidence in prayer, not because by faith I'm going to get the answer that I want, but I can have great confidence in prayer because by faith I can rest assured that his answer is actually perfect. That he's more loving than I am. He's, he's wiser than I am. There's no version of me coming out of prayer and saying, if God doesn't do what I want, he's not as wise or as loving as I am. And so we have great confidence in God's kingdom and great confidence in God's will. And now I'm going to turn to God's word. First from Romans 11 and then Hebrews 13. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory and forever. Amen. 
And now from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. We can pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, because there's a greatness to God's kingdom, and there's a greatness to God's will. So here's this morning's sermon in a sentence, how we expound this text. Here's where we're going. Praying for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done removes us from our failing attempts to be God, and it reorients us to rest in the greatness of God. We're removed from our failing attempts to be God, and we are reoriented to to rest in the greatness of God. And that's why we're given this great gift of crying out like a little kid, Abba Father, who's too little to really know what he needs, but he knows exactly who he needs. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in my emotions, in these circumstances. Oh, God. I'm helpless, but I'm not hopeless. It's a great gift. So, first of all, how does prayer remove us from our failing attempts to be God? Let's talk about this, thy kingdom come. The the cause of all human problems, the brokenness of this world, is because we were created to serve God. Man sinned, and as a result, we serve other things. And as a result of serving other things, since the garden, we live in a world that is broken. We are entirely alienated. We are alienated from nature and creation, which is why the world breaks down and which is why our bodies break down. We are alienated from each other, which is why we live in a world of hostility and, and, and oppression and violence and, and uh, greed and suffering in all forms. We're just alienated because of sin. We, we've essentially, in the garden, man reached up to be God and like a cog, like a gear that's fallen off of its place in a great machine, man fell. And the whole universe has been out of sync since. Uh, C.S. Lewis gives us a great insight on this because historically speaking and globally speaking, we have done a very poor job at being God. That's a, I'm painting all of human history with an incredibly broad brush this morning. You're not going to find, as you study the course of human history, we have done a great, a great job of being God. C.S. Lewis gives us great insight in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He writes it like this. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. That's the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions devised. But each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings selfish and cruel people to the top. And it all slides back into mystery, misery, and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up all right and run a few yards, and then it breaks down. They're trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us humans. And so we come before God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We don't do a good job of being God. We're incapable gods. And in that text that I just read you from Romans, I'll I'll remind you of verse 36. This is what it says. For from God and through God... And to God are all things. So we need God's kingdom to come because everything is from God, everything is for God, everything is through God. 
We're not given prayer so that we can get shrink God and get him onto our agenda. We're given prayer because it actually gives us a restful heart that we're on God's agenda. We've got suffering in this church, and we prayed about it this morning. Life and death stuff. And I refuse to shrink the gospel down in such a way that we think that we're given prayer so that we can somehow get God up to what we want. There's great rest in praying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, O God, in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in this earth. God, crying out to him. Great rest there, because God's kingdom comes in two ways. As we see here, because Romans says his kingdom, I mean, it's all about him. So how is that restful? It comes in two ways. Firstly, by the Spirit of God, and secondly, by the Word of God. The Spirit of God reorients what our hearts want, and the Word of God reorients what our thoughts want. I mean, there's a great reorientation. There's a great rest in a world that's at unrest. I mean, the most anxious Christians in the world, and I say this with authority because I was one, I mean, the most anxious Christians in the world are those who are saying, power is nothing without control. How come I can't God get God to do this thing for me? And we spin our wheels and we shake our fists at heaven and we grit our teeth to the sky because we're so angry because God isn't on our agenda. And when we don't think God is on our agenda, we start to doubt that God is good. And when you start doubting that God is good, you start doubting that God is with you. And when you start doubting that God is good and doubting that God is with you, you start to doubt if God exists. I've done that many times. Many of you have done that many times. But there's great rest as we allow those two things to happen, the Spirit of God to reorient our desires, the, the Word of God to reshape our hearts. But again, there's great hope here because this, the burden is not on you to do that. You can't, do, you can't recalibrate yourself. You can't recalibrate your heart. You can't recalibrate your thoughts and your, and, and your mind. That's why you're given this great gift of prayer because it's by the Spirit that He does it. And so He gives you this prayer to be constantly revisiting this place of dependency. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's, Door, Lord's Day 48, it expounds the text this way. It gives us something brilliant. Here's what it says. It says, By asking God to rule us by his word and his spirit in such a way that more and more we want what God wants. More and more we want what he wants. The Westminster Catechism, question 102, it expounds the text this way. It says, Praying God's kingdom of grace is advanced and the kingdom of Satan's suffering and death is destroyed. When we look out at the world and we look out at the problems and the world is broken and our bodies are broken and we, we have great hope as we come to this place of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus, when he teaches on his kingdom, if you read all the gospels, he talks about his kingdom in two ways. Sometimes it sounds like he's saying the kingdom's already here. And then sometimes it sounds like he's saying the kingdom is coming. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find texts that are going to say, Paul, look, it says the kingdom of God has come. It's here already. True. And then you're going to find another text, and you're going to go, wait a minute, this sounds like the kingdom is coming. True. We live as believers in a period of time called already and not yet. The kingdom of God has come with Christ's perfect life, his atoning death for your sin, his divine resurrection. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. But the kingdom of God is not being fulfilled until Christ's return. And we live in the already and not yet of a, of a kingdom that has come and a kingdom that is still coming. So when we cry out to God, thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done. That's a great prayer of faith. That's a great prayer of rest. We're praying like Christ prayed in the garden. Your kingdom come. Oh God, not my will be done, but yours. We're praying like Jesus prayed. And the reason why that's so powerful is because it gives us great rest to realize the kingdom has come, but it's not fully realized. The most frustrating Christians in the world, and I say this with authority because I was one, are those that totally negate that there is a kingdom that's coming. They live in the already, and they don't talk about the not yet. So then the thinking is, I should have everything right now. I should have divine health now. I should, be, I should walk in perfect health now. I should have all provision now. I should have everything now. I mean, that's a very first world North American kind of chronologically you know, snobby way of thinking about things. Because I've got brothers and sisters that are in Syria right now, and they're being bombed every week. So that's not a very faithful reading of the text. Otherwise, God's really picking favorites, and he's really super unjust, which he isn't. There's a kingdom that has come, and it's already. And I'll tell you what. My, uh, what I think is very helpful for all of us to recognize that God's kingdom has come in Christ is then there's an, there's an immediacy for us to be missional. His kingdom has come. Christ has come. Let's love him and live to his glory, and let's, let's rest in this grace on Sunday mornings, and let's be ministers of his grace Monday, to, uh, Monday through Saturday. Let's, because his kingdom has come, let's share the goodness of God's grace. So there's an immediacy there. We don't want to be like the church before the Great Awakening that just sat down and said, hey, you know what? If God wants to save somebody, he will. And uh, salvation's by grace alone anyhow. So I don't really need to do anything because that's kind of beyond my scope. God does the grace thing. I don't. So let's not share the gospel. Let's just hang out in our Reformed churches and become crusty monuments. You know, that's not what? That's not the New Testament. That's why Jonathan Edwards and, and George Whitfield stood up and said, uh, guys, we should probably share the gospel. And then this thing called the Great Awakening happened. Right. So that's good, living in the already. But the problem with forgetting about the not yet is then when the life and death stuff happens, like we prayed about this morning, we've got families in this church dealing with the life and death stuff. The gospel is big enough for the life and death stuff. It extracts our eyes off of the already and says, well, there's some things that aren't until the not yet. That's either a place of great hope and rest for us, or it's going to be totally debilitating because we're going to, as I have in the past, falsely believed I should be having all that now. See, it says, on earth as it is in heaven, so that means everything that's true in heaven should be true on earth right now. Come on, by faith, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, get yourself healed. What's the matter with you people? That's a very wrong reading of the text. That's a, that's a burden. That's crazy. There's no rest there. We pray thy kingdom come because, as Romans gives us, everything is from him and through him and to him are all things. And we rest in his greatness and our smallness and it's very restful because you're his child. There's no version of him not loving you. There's no version of him not being good toward you. Despite when your life says the contrary. And I'll continue with this. When we're praying this, we're saying, God, thy kingdom come. Would you extend your royal power, thy kingdom come? Would you extend your royal power into my heart and my mind and my emotions so that when life catches on fire, I don't run off into this state of independence and anger towards you, but I actually remain in a place of real restfulness because you're, you're recalibrating me. I mean, you know, my life is in God's hands. And he is a good and loving father. And so Jesus talked about the kingdom as already and not yet. I was having a coffee with a young guy uh, the other week. I mean, I have 
a lot of coffee. So thank you for all of your faithful giving to the church, because a great portion of our budget is <laughs> dedicated to coffee. So I just need you to know that, full disclosure. Okay. So I'm having a coffee with this young guy, and he's saying to me, uh, he's saying, what? what is, he's asking the problem of evil. You know, what is God doing? Why doesn't he do something about this? Look at all these things in my newsfeed. I mean, every other day something crazy is happening in the world. Why isn't God just like obliterating it? We had a long discussion about it. It's very good, but I'll, I'll basically sum it up like this about the kingdom that's come, already come and the kingdom that's coming is that the Bible reveals that we live in Act 3. There's four acts, but we live in Act 3. Act 1 is that God created everything perfectly. Act 2 is that man, through his you know, sin, damned everything. Act 3 is redemption, where Christ has accomplished everything. But we live in a broken world. We live in a world infiltrated by an enemy. We live in a world broken by sin. And we live in Act 3. But Act 4 is coming. And if you go to a film, and before the, the director and the story writers have a, a chance to get you to Act 4, and you're in the middle of the crisis, and you stand up and you throw your popcorn at the screen and you run out of the theater, you say, this is the worst thing ever. You, well, Act 4 was on its way. And for us as believers, the hope and the rest of praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is that we know that Act 4 is coming. And, we have, and, and that's where, our, our, that's where our, our, our great rest is. I said, the reason that God doesn't just, you know, intervene and just go, that's it. It showcases incredible patience. It showcases unfathomable love. Do you know how many people through all of history God has saved that you would never save? There isn't a person in this room more generous than God. There's not a person in this room. I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you when you would have nuked everybody. I'll tell you. I said, I can't believe you see it. And Paul's offended me. I don't care. Listen. This is when you would have nuked everybody. If you were Moses and you went up on the mountain to be with God and you came down and everybody had a golden calf and you were like, what the? And you looked at the tablets and you said, don't, this one here says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then the second one says, thou shalt not have a graven image. You mean like this golden calf? That's when... Everybody in here would have said, you know what, we're just done with humanity. I mean, we're just going to end this right now. Right? If you were Moses, you would have just come down, you would have seen they screwed that up, you would have turned to the priest, and you would have said, you done messed up, A.A. Ron! Right? And that would have been the end of it. Over. Everybody in here. But God, through his incredible patience and incredible grace, he... he he bore with Israel sin for generations, 40, 42-ish generations since Abraham to Christ. You and I wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have endured that long. There's things in your newsfeed every week that would anger you. There's things going on in your life and your body and your friend that you would have said, that's it. It's game over. But God, abundant in mercy, radical, unfathomable grace, he is saving people through all of this horrific tragedy. What kind of a God would he be? If he could only use things for his good that were exactly like him. God is so great. God takes things that are nothing like him. And he brings life from death. He takes horrific, horrible tragedies. He takes wars and disease and death and famine and suffering. I mean, God could take piles and piles and piles of Shiza and turn it into redemptive, glorious, saving grace. He has always done it. He always does do it. God has only ever worked with things that are broken and dead. That's how good he is. 
That's how big he is. That's what we're dealing with here. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I am small, you are great, and oh God, would you give my restful heart a, a place of rest in you. This is the goodness of the God that we serve. All, uns, all suffering, injustice, poverty, sickness, death, it's all going to end because of Christ. And in the end is not death, but life. And if you have better news than life coming from death, I'd love to hear it. This is what we're dealing with here. This is the grandness of the gospel. This is the grandness of the hope that we have. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're asking, God, rule in me. And we're also saying, rule in me, but also give my heart hope and rest for your kingdom that's still coming. And so that text that I read in Romans 11, think about it, to again get context, Paul wrote that to the, to the church in Rome. Think about how meaningful it would be if you were in Rome and you were getting these words saying, for him and through him and to him are all things, and you are in God's hands. If you're the church in Rome and you get to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, this, this letter was written in 5758 AD, but then in 64 AD, a guy named Nero shows up. Nero, not a nice guy. Did some crazy things. I remember Dr. Gerald Bray doing a lecture on uh, Roman antiquity, and he talked about how Nero would go around in this chariot on the lawn on various Roman holidays. There'd be various Christians being crucified and burned like ornaments, lawn ornaments, and he would kind of roll around. I mean, the Romans thought he was crazy. It's not like Rome loved this guy. They didn't love him. I mean, it's kind of a toss-up whether, whether it was the Christians that burnt Rome, which is what Nero said, or Nero burnt Rome, which is what a lot of Romans actually said. This guy was crazy. And then two years after that, Paul gets his head separated from Rome, himself in Rome. And then in 177 AD, a guy named Marcus Aurelius shows up, for those of you gladiator fans. And Marcus Aurelius does widespread persecution. And then in 303 AD, Diocletian shows up. And it's just like, it's game over for the, for, it's game over for, for um, complacent Christianity. It's game over in Rome. But yet, what did God do through all of that horrific tragedy? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And here we are in cushy, cozy <laughs> Kitchener-Waterloo 2,000 years later talking about the glory of Christ because God can take things that are horrific and continually bring life out of them. He's a God of resurrection. This is his goodness. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. So God is working all things together for his glory and for the good of your salvation despite all appearances to the contrary. Despite all appearances to the contrary, everything you have in your life, God in his gracious grace gave you. And everything you don't have in your life, in his fatherly wisdom, he's withheld from you. Don't ask me to explain that. I can't explain that. Who, who am I to explain that? I can't explain it. But, but two-year-olds can't fathom why their fathers wouldn't give them what they want when they want, when they want it. I mean, that's just how we, we are, cosmically speaking, two-year-olds, all of us. So for God to withhold something, that in our minds we're like... Well, it's obviously good that God would do this. Why won't he do it? Yeah. I don't know. But he is, and when I say working all things together, I like to think in my life, but he's actually working all things together in the, in the tapestry and the fabric of all humanity from all time working things together. I mean, he's got a wisdom that we just can't fathom. So we get to rest. We know he's good. We know he loves us. We know he's gracious. And we know in the end... He is going to eradicate all suffering. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so you are loved with this love that is so strong, death itself can't hold you. 
And that's why the book of Romans, with that text I read this morning, Romans doesn't end with academia. Romans ends in worship. I mean, all of Romans, Paul's unfolding. You know, we could spend an entire year unpacking Romans because it's so rich and beautiful and incredible. All these doctrines of justification and sanctification and being righteous in status but substance in our sin. And the, I mean, there's, we could unpack it for a year. But, you know, he doesn't end it with an academic lecture. He ends it with worship. He ends it with curving Rome out of himself and up to the great God of this great kingdom, which is what you and I need every seven days to come in here and to rest and to be curved out of ourselves because we all come in here burdened with various things in all of our lives and to be pointed to the beauty of the Savior who is holding us in his hands. And so how does this prayer reorient us to rest in the greatness of God when we're praying, thy will be done? What's going on? You know, I used to think if I just prayed, oh God, thy will be done, I used to think, well, that's not a prayer of faith. You bailed. You actually jinxed your prayer. What you're supposed to do is know what God's will is and then confidently declare it and get that scripture and stick it on your mirror and confess it every day while you're brushing your teeth and stand on it. And if anybody in the, comes in the room who thinks otherwise, you just Sparta them right out of the... Because you, I can't have any unbelief. Because if I just pray, oh God, thy will be done. Oh, you jinxed your prayer. Meanwhile, there's a, a man named Jesus Christ who was in the garden. And he prayed, Oh God, not my will be done, but thine, to the Father. It's a great prayer of faith to confess our helplessness, but not hopelessness. Oh God, thy will be done. I know you're good. I know you're smarter than I am, wise than I am, good, loving. Thy will be done. Radical confidence that his answer is always perfect, even though my requests aren't. Radical confidence in this. Or he orients us. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he didn't do under conditions you and I are never going to face. Jesus gives the Lord's Spirit. He says, this is how to pray. Pray, thy will be done. Because why? He, he did that. He was doing that in the garden under conditions you and I are never going to face. They were difficult beyond our comprehension. And so we pray because we are helpless, so that in our helplessness we are lifted out of our hopelessness. And so we confess this, and, we, and, we're, and we're delivered, and we pray it. And if we're driven by my will be done then our helplessness leads us into hopelessness because we're not God. If we decide what God should do and the way he should do it and how he should do it, and we just, and we just camp on that like a, like a dog on a bone, we're going to be frustrated, and we're going to be anxious, and we're going to be sad, and we're going to be confused because we've traded thy will be done for my will be done. And God's not on our agenda. But he's loving. He's not on our agenda because he's stubborn. He's not on our agenda because he's God, and he's loving, and he's great, and he's good. And so, in verse 21 of that text in Hebrews that I read to you, Thy will be done. I want to do your will. It's a cry. Thy will be done in my life. Do something to this heart so that I desire your will, that I want to do your will. And in verse 21, it reads that God equips you with every good thing so that you may do his will. He's not saying, sola bootstrapsa, figure it out, try a little harder to do my will. You can't do that. You can't self-generate. That's why the text says, he equips you with every good work so that you may do his will. And then it goes on to say, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is, this is the great scandal of grace, guys. This is the great scandal of grace. That he's going to do the work in you. And then he's going to give you the grace to do his will. 
And then by the power of his spirit, he's going to continue to cause you to want more and more what he wants. And then at the end of, of, of living to the glory of his will, of course imperfectly, because we're sinners, but constantly and increasingly because in Christ, united to Christ, we're righteous, then he rewards you. Then he rewards you for everything that he did in you. Isn't that amazing? The text doesn't say, if you can self-generate the faith, and if you can self-generate the desire, and if you can self-generate the power to do his will, he'll reward you. That is not what the text gives us. He's doing it. He's coming towards you. He's working in you. He's working it out. And then in the end, he's going to reward you for everything that he did. This is the grace that you get to rest in. This is why you pray, thy will be done. Oh God, do something to this heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh that I will desire your will. It's beautiful, and it's amazing, and it's powerful. And so, in conclusion, I want to share something with you, and it's that the worship and the adoration in the Lord's Prayer, it it leads us into God-centeredness. Notice that the Lord's Prayer is actually half over, and we haven't asked for anything yet. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's, ha- it's half over before we start asking. Because in the worship, we're reoriented out of a self-centeredness into a God-centeredness. And the reason that that, that occurs is because self-centeredness curves us inward. And we become anxious and become exhausted because we can't control everything. But God-centeredness turns us upward. where we are at peace and where we are liberated because we know that God is with us despite everything. And once that reorientation happens of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, oh God, you're so big and good and loving, and I'm your child in your hands, now I'm ready to talk about my daily bread. Because everything about my heart and my mind and my will has been recalibrated out out from me just worrying in your direction because I really need you to get on my agenda and do my will. I've been curved out of myself and upward into you to this place of great rest. This is the gift of grace. This is the gift of prayer um, that God uh, gives us in the Lord's Prayer. And so the great hope of the gospel is what enables us to make sense of our life because globally speaking, right, life is hard. But you have a loving Father. And you are in His hands. And there is great rest because you are united to the death-proof Savior of the world who, by his word, brought cosmos from chaos. He's got you. He loves you. He is holding the universe together with the word of his power. We forget that every single day. Because the world is broken, relationships are broken, our bodies are broken, and we forget every single day that we're being held in the hand of the one who spoke the world into existence, and he's holding it together with the word of his power. And his love is toward you, and his grace is toward you. Praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done removes us from our failing attempts to be God, and it invites us and reorients us to rest in the greatness of God. Let's pray.